All right, Children's Church, you may be dismissed. Follow Miss Flo on up the stairs. All right, so today we are going to be in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. But before we do that, you guys probably already know that we're going to do a little bit of review. I like to call it, um, as Phil puts it, um, purposeful redundancy or intentional repetition. Um, You know, repeating something over and over again commits it to your memory, and that's really our focus here. So last week we started a series, and we started a series based on 1 Timothy 1.19, when it says, Holding faith and a good conscience, by rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. And so we looked at that verse and we said, obviously, knowing what a shipwreck is, we do not want to make a shipwreck of our faith. A shipwreck of our faith not only costs lives, but it loses material. It affects people that weren't even involved in the shipwreck. We do not want that. So we had to look at the antecedent or the object that this was referring to when it says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And if we don't want to make a shipwreck of our own faith, then we obviously have to look at what is this referring to. And we said that we believed it was referring to two things, faith and a good conscience. And we asked the question, what was faith, essentially? And it's revealed in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, when he says, This saying is worthy of all, is trustworthy and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That that is the essential foundation or grounding of our faith. Without that, we have no faith. If we don't believe that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, then we have no faith at all. I mean, amen, that's Christianity. It's about Jesus Christ. We just sang a song, Cornerstone, Christ alone. It's about Christ alone. If we don't have faith that Jesus came to save sinners, then we're wasting our time here. So essentially, that's the foundation of our faith. But what about the second portion of that statement? And a good conscience. And we define conscience not as uh, you know Pinocchio and Jiminy Cricket, but we define conscience as an affirmation or a witness in your spirit that you are living a life that reflects the faith that you claim to hold. And so we looked at that and we said, okay, are we bearing fruit that is calling us or reflecting us as a good tree? Are we a good tree bearing good fruit or are we a bad tree bearing bad fruit? Because it's one or the other. Either the majority of the things in our life show that we have faith or the majority of things in our life show that we only claim to have faith. So that was what we wanted to look at. But what? how do we know? What is the measure of that? What is the measure of the good fruit? And obviously you have the list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But we really wanted to know what implications or applications can we apply to our life that know and reflect that we have a good conscience of our faith. And so we started to look at that. But in looking at that, we looked at the parable of the sower and the four types of seed, that some seed was sown on the road And the birds of the air came and ate it. Some was sown in ground that had some rocks in it. And it shot up quick, but it didn't have roots. So the sun dried it up and scorched it and killed the plant. And some was sown among thorns, but the thorns choked out the moisture and the light. And so the plant died. And then the final type was sown on good ground. And we said that we're not responsible for the seed because the seed is the Word of God. And it's always going to accomplish the purpose that it was set forth to do. But we're responsible for the ground. You are earthen vessels. God made man from the dust of the earth. We're earthen vessels. Paul says we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in earthen vessels. So we're responsible for the type of ground that we are. Are we ground that won't even take the seed? 
that just has it on the surface and that's it so anything can come and get it up and take it from us or are we ground that has some other stuff in our life that we just won't let go of that is represented by the rocks and so we can't ever have any root the gospel never really has any true root in our lives or are we ground that is all the cares and the struggles and the worries of the world choke the gospel out every time it tries to produce something in our lives or are we capable of becoming good ground? Because I believe that good ground reflects those that have the faith and have a good conscience in that faith and are living a life that reflects that faith that they claim to hold. And so we said that we were going to proceed through this series and we were going to take the parable of the sower and we were going to mirror that against four natural causes of shipwrecks. And each one of those natural causes of shipwrecks represents an application that we can put into our lives to make sure that we don't go shipwreck ourselves. And the first one of those is failure by design, equipment, or operator slash crew failure. And we said that this is a representation of the seed that never gets in the road. It, it's, I mean, it gets in the road. It never gets fully planted or invested in the ground. And that's a representation of stewardship. And that's what we're going to highlight on today. And so before we even get started in this, I want you guys to understand something. Stewardship is often used synonymous with finances. And that is going to be a big portion of what we're going to cover today. But first of all, I don't care what you do with your finances. I want that known. Me as a person, as an individual, I personally don't care about what you do with your money. Because I don't need your money. God is my provider. However, God has some clear-cut instructions in His Word about what you should do with your money. And Scripture speaks a lot about money. And the interesting thing and the testimony to the depravity of our culture is as soon as somebody from behind this pulpit mentions money, everybody's heart clenches up. Everybody sucks their breath in like, <gasps> the pastor just mentioned money. It's because we've seen charities across the United States, their CEOs are like squandering money. They're driving in like Mercedes Benzes and meanwhile people that the charity is supposed to be taken care of are still doing without. We've seen people squander people's generous contributions. And we've seen televangelists and prosperity ministers put up car wash menus and say if you give this much you'll get this blessing or if you give this much you'll get this blessing or if you give this much then I'll, God will deliver you out of purgatory. That was an uh, early thing on, on in the uh, church history. But the Bible actually has a lot to say about what to do with your money. And so I don't want the misappropriation or the misuse or the abuse of people preaching about money to deliver a wedge in your heart and make your heart hard against what the Bible actually says. The Bible says truths about money and we need to take those regardless of what the world does. The world's going to act like the world. People are going to squander. People are going to stand behind this pulpit that have no more Jesus than the man on the moon. And they're going to say that if you give them a blessing that they have King Midas' touch and everything that you have will increase. And that's not true. But yet, because they've abused and preached lies and used the Bible to do so, it's made our hearts kind of hard to the whole money situation with Christianity and that needs to be changed. So we're going to preach the truth and we're going to preach it straight from the Word. But money is not the only application of stewardship. There are five C's and I made sure they all started with C for easy note taking and memorization. Don't worry, I'll put this in the bulletin next week on the outline. 
But the five C's of stewardship are this. First, like we just said, is your checkbook. You can put checkbook, you can put credit card, you can put cash. Something that starts with a C that'll help you resonate, this aspect of stewardship is your finances. The second C is your calendar. Because you are given 24 hours in a day. The richest man in the world and the poorest man in the world are both given 24 hours in a day. Everybody is given the exact same amount of time. There's nothing you can do to increase the amount of time you have, and there's nothing you can do to decrease the amount of time you have. Everybody, as long as they live, has the exact same amount of time in a day. What we do with that time, we're accountable for. You're accountable for every idle moment of your life. The, sec the third C is capabilities. And what I mean by this is your natural gifts, your natural talents, the things that God has gifted you with or the things that God has led you in your life to become good at over a career. Through experience, through life situations, things that you have picked up along your life, what are you doing with that? Because you're accountable for your capabilities. They're gifts from God. You are held accountable for those. The fourth is contacts. And I don't mean the things that replace glasses. I mean the people in your life, your sphere of influence. What do you do with the influence you have in others' lives? Who do you let influence your life? You're accountable for that. And the last one is conversation. What words occupy the majority of your speech? Because you're accountable for every idle word ever spoken. Stewardship is defined as this. It's defined as an administrator or manager or overseer of another's goods. That's why in the brief exhortation this morning preceding worship, I read that verse from Psalm 24, that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, because every moment that you have, every dollar that you have, every idle word, everything that you have, your capabilities, all of it belongs to God. And you are put as a steward or as a manager or as an overseer of that. And so what you do with that, you're going to be held accountable for. There's a parable in Luke 16 of a king and he calls a steward before him and removes the steward from his position as a manager because of his unfaithful stewardship. And that is a parable of the kingdom. And essentially, it goes on to talk about what the steward does and how he suddenly gets wise and all of that. But the essential thing I want you to understand is the steward was held accountable for his stewardship. And this is a parable told by Jesus. Showing that we along with various other scriptures, are held accountable for our stewardship. And so we're going to go over these, but we're going to start with the most unpopular one. We're going to start with money. And for the record, I hate preaching this. That's why it's probably not as exciting or as good or as eloquent as my other messages, because I don't like preaching about money because I know what it does to people. I don't like preaching about money because I'm not interested in your money. I'm interested in your sanctification. And the two are very, very closely related. So, the first thing we're going to do, Matthew 25, verse 14, we're going to read this parable of the talents. Starting in verse 14, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents went, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. 
Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who also had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who also had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give to him who has the ten talents. For every one who has will be given, and he who will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Man. So the thing I want you to understand before we even get into the money is the first two gave their money. They sowed it. And this isn't just about money. Remember, this is about stewardship in general. Everything that they'd received from the Lord, they sowed so that it produced a harvest, so that it produced increase, so that it developed and it produced more. That's the same with your time. You use your time so that it brings fruit, so that it produces something in people's lives, so that it advances the gospel of the kingdom. That's the same with your capabilities. That's the same with the people you have in your life. And that's the same with the words that you say. You use them and you invest them in such a way that it produces something out of it. But this is specifically talking about money because money is something tangible that we can look at and we can see. The first two did not operate according to fear. The first two operated according to who their master was, trying to bring fruit and increase for their master. The last one, the one that got punished, the one that got in trouble, he had a skewed view and mindset of who his master was. He had said that he was a hard master, that he reaped where he didn't sow, which is not the case because Jesus reaps what he does sow. He never takes what is not rightfully his. But he calls his master and has a certain mindset about his master, which forces him to operate under the spirit of fear. And we as Christians do not live or operate our life according to the spirit of fear. And for so often, people have not contributed, and since we're on this parable of finances, they have not contributed financially because they have fear. Well, am I going to have enough to pay my bills? Am I going to have enough to do this? So they begin to withhold and operate according to the spirit of fear and not according to the spirit of faith in their God who is supposed to be their provider, who they claim to hold in regard as their provider. So here's the question. And this is what we're going to circle back around to. What causes you you to do the things that you do? Out of what spirit do you operate in? Do you operate according to the spirit of faith or do you operate according to the spirit of fear? I'm going to be honest. Going to time from money so that everybody can breathe a sigh of relief. I'm going to take it off the money scene for a second. I worked a job at Lazy Boy. I hated it. I hated it. Every second of it, I hated it. But for over two years, I had to work this job because we had our kids and we knew that God was telling us to be a one-income household and that faith was to stay home with the kids. And this was the only job where I could make enough to cover the transition from two income to one income. And I had to work six days a week and it was heavy labor and it was hard labor. 
And for so often, I would get home between 4 and 5. And when I got home, I would have about an hour and a half to two hours where I was fine. But about 7 o'clock, 7.30, because I had to get up before 4 the next morning and go back to work, I would start to set in this irritable mood. And I'm making a confession. I was irritable because my mind was already in the next day of work. I was already focused on the next day. And so I began to dictate my actions at 7 p.m. according to fear of the next day. I was dictating the way that I handled my kids, the way that I related to my wife, and the way that I even spent my time of devotion to God. Like, oh, I've got to get done by 8 o'clock so that I can get ready for bed, so that I can be in bed no later than 9, because I've got to get up before 4 and I've got to do this heavy day of labor, so I've got to make sure that I get enough sleep. And even if it was a ministry event, I would leave early so that I could get back, so that I could get to bed in time, never operating out of the spirit of faith. And yes, there is a difference. Sometimes you have to be responsible. But what I'm talking about from my own personal life, because I knew my heart at the time, I was operating out of the spirit of fear of what was going to come the next day. I was not operating out of the spirit of faith. Well, if I spend this extra time devoting and investing myself into the lives of young kids, because it was Friday nights where we did the fifth quarter and we were investing into high school kids that didn't know Jesus and we were trying to lead them to the Lord. If that one night I stayed up to 11 midnight before I got into bed, would God bless me with energy the next day because I had devoted my time to Him instead of to the natural qualities? And I tested that a few times, and most of the time I had more energy the next day with less sleep because I had sacrificed it for God. But when I operated out of fear, I always felt like I didn't get enough sleep. And the truth of the matter is, if we're operating out of fear, we're always going to be in the realm of fear. Even if we don't tithe 10% back on the money thing, and we don't are operating with the full hundred, we're going to have more fear with the full hundred than we will with the ninety than if we just went ahead and tithed. And the reason that I'm saying that is for this. If you can't live on your budget of 90%, you will be unable to live on your budget of 100%. That extra 10% is not going to make the whole difference. If you can't live under 90, you can't live under 100. You're still going to have the same spirit of fear. The difference is, is if you live under the 90, you're going to have the confidence that you're sowing into God who provides and blesses those that sow, and you're going to know that He has your back. If you're operating according to the 100, then you're kind of sitting there thinking, I haven't given, I haven't sowed, so how do I expect the promise of God blessing those that give to be applicable in my life? Let's back off that for a second. Let's talk about tithing. Because I said we're going to start with the most unpopular one. Tithing is a word that literally means tenth. I didn't pull the percentage of 10% out of thin air. The word tithe is a Hebrew word that means tenth. In Genesis 14, and Bruce, you just read this story not long ago, Abraham has a cousin Lot, or a nephew actually, a nephew Lot, and Lot gets taken captive by some kings. Abraham gets some men together and they go on camels and they deliver Lot from the captivity. And they take a significant spoil from that. And Abraham meets a guy named Melchizedek who there's a lot of theological debate about who this was. Personally, I believe that he was Jesus um, in the flesh, pre-incarnate Jesus. And the reason is is because Hebrews says that he was without fa father or mother, without descent, having neither beginning of life nor end of days. I don't know anybody else that would fit that description other than Jesus. But Abraham meets him, and Abraham gives him tithes 
of all that he has. And this is the scripture. It says, And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. That's Genesis 14.20 in the King James Version. Listen to the same thing translated in a modern English version. And blessed be God, Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The Hebrew word for tithe literally means tenth. It's a taking the first fruits, Proverbs 3.9, taking the first fruits of all of your increase and taking a tenth of it and giving that to God. Saying, God, this belongs to you. I'm going to live off the 90, but I'm going to give the tenth so that I can surrender and make you Lord of my finances also. Remember I said it was an issue of sanctification. Now I know this is not a popular message. Trust me, I don't like preaching it. Malachi chapter 3. You can turn there if you want to. It's the last book of the Old Testament. This is where we're going to have you guys get mad at me. We're going to be in Malachi 3 verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe or the full tenth into the storehouse, and there that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour out for you a blessing until there is no more need. And it goes on to talk about rebuking the devourer and rebuking those things that try to come against you. Here's the principle. If the tithe does not expire by the transition of the covenants, and there is no record that it does, actually early church history and the New Testament both confirm that not only did they give the tenth, but they also gave contributions and offerings significantly above the tenth. Even in the early church writings, they still noted that the tithe was required. But if the tithe is required, then Effectively, if we are not tithing, then we are robbing God. And that's not my words, that's the words of Scripture. So if you believe in the solidity and the inerrancy of Scripture and you are not tithing, then up to this point, you've been okay. But now the words of God are a testimony against you because now you know them. Understand that? You know them now. Again, this is not about me getting your money. This is about you surrendering every area of your life to the Lord so that you may grow in Christian maturity. But the point that I want to look at, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. First portion of this. This church doesn't miraculously keep its lights on. This church doesn't miraculously have the money to do outreach. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. The church requires the saints giving to the church so that as this verse says, there may be food in my house. For this church to do the things that a church is required to do. It takes the generous contribution of the saints. Also, a lot of you guys were here for Carlos and Lily. They live off the Great Commission Fund. That's how they are able to be in Mexico right now as missionaries because the Great Commission Fund of our global family, the Alliance, supports them. All the missionaries in the Alliance are supported by the Great Commission Fund. That Great Commission Fund is fueled by the contributions of the churches. 
And I don't mean to be crude because I don't know how much each person gives. I refuse to know that knowledge. But I do know when the overall doesn't match the picture that it's supposed to match. And there have been a month or two since we've been here, not beating anybody up, where the contributions of the congregation doesn't even meet half of the cost to keep the church going. There have been months where we're over. But there have been a lot of months where we don't even meet half. And the, co- the cost of operation for this church is very, very small. Very, very small. I mean, just think about it. The land's paid for. The building's paid for. We've got utilities. We've got insurance. And we've got termite stuff. And that's about it. But the general contribution of the congregation has on some months not even been half. And that's, that's tough. This is not a beat em up message. I told you I didn't want to preach this, but I felt like it was time and I felt like God was telling me to. That's why you're hearing this. The second part of this that I want you to look at, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Put me to the test. This is the only promise in Scripture, the only challenge you're allowed to put God to the test on. You're not allowed to test Him over His righteousness. You're not allowed to test Him over temptation, over His wrath. You're not allowed to test Him on anything but this. You're allowed to see if your generosity can outperform His generosity. You're allowed to see if you can outgive God. He says, put me to the test and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out on you a blessing until there is no more need. This does not mean that if you give, you're going to have a Lamborghini. It means that if you give, God is going to take care of your needs. That's the promise. Now look, and I will address this because I think that this has been a common misconception across churches as a whole, not necessarily this congregation. There is this mindset that if you do something in the place of the tenth, you don't have to do the tenth. And that is a misconception. That's why it's always referenced as tithes and contributions or tithes and offerings because your tithe is 10% before you do anything, pay your bills, anything. Your tithe is first as an honoring to God and then the rest of it is yours to do with what you please. Now, anything that you do other than that is an offering. In the Old Testament, when you had your tithe, it was literally you bringing your required sacrifice to the Lord. But if you chose to bring a different sacrifice than what was instituted and what was required, that was an offering. That was a willful, voluntary offering. The same is true in the New Testament. You're required your tithe. But if you choose to sew a pair of curtains for the church, if you choose to bake a cake, if you choose to donate your labor, those are good offerings and great contributions, but those do not take the place of a tithe. I just want that noted. Moving on, because this is going over like a herd of turtles. Come on, Pastor. <laughs> but there is good news. I, I just, at least if nothing else, if you hate this message and you hate everything, at least you know that I'm going to tell you the truth regardless of whether I like it or not. At least you know I'm not going to dance around the truth and it's going to be all roses and fluffy clouds and cushions and... Powerpuff Girls, it's going to be what the Bible says. Powerpuff Girls. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> there, there are a lot of people, 
And that should be that should be comforting to you. It really should because there's going to come a day where you stand in front of God Almighty with no one backing you and there is no excuse for anything that you've done. You have no excuses because remember that message? He's going to put it up on the Jumbotron and you're going to watch your life play out. That's just my mindset picturing it, but you will watch your life play out before you and you will answer for everything that you've ever done. That day is going to come. At least you can rest confident that you do not have a pastor that's going to lie to you. No matter how difficult it is, I will tell you the truth. Even if you never come back, I would rather tell you the truth and get that blood off my hands than to lie to you and me be held accountable. Because if I lied to you and I said tithe is not required, then I'm going to answer for everyone that didn't tithe. And I ain't going to do that. I love y'all, but I ain't going to do that. But there is good news. And the good news comes in the form of this. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and here's the best part, running over. It will be put into your lap. Now here's the challenge. For the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Luke 6.38. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 says basically something very similar. It says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Have you ever wondered why you just don't have two pennies to rub together? I've tested this, both ends of the spectrum. I've withheld my tithe and barely paid my bills. I've tithed when I didn't have it, and somehow I had more than enough. Even though we literally, Faith and I used to do this, she has the yearly planner, and she would plan our finances and our bills, what bills had to be paid, and she'd write the money and she'd write the paycheck amount. We've literally went back with a calculator and it didn't add up. But yet at the time, we had full cabinets of groceries, and when we didn't, we had people knocking on our door that knew nothing about it, bringing them to us. We've literally tested this both ways. And I promise you, when you're trying to live on the full 100 without God's help, You're not going to have two pennies to run together. But when you submit the ten and surrender the ten and say, God, I'm going to trust you, then the ninety is going to be more than the hundred is. Even though mathematically that don't make sense, it's a truth. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, very, very quickly, I'm going to move on from money. I'm going to move on from money. We're going to look at a couple things very, very quickly. And then I'm going to, I'm going to wrap this all up. Because it all falls under the same heading of stewardship. Your calendar. Your time. How do you use your time? Everybody's got the same amount. There's nothing you can do to get more, and there's nothing you can do to have less. There's three things that you can do with your time, and you can write this down. You can waste time. Everybody does. You can spend time, and you can invest time. So the question then becomes, how much and what percentage of your time have you wasted? And by that, I mean the same thing. I like games. I like video games. Confession time. I like playing video games. But if I sit on my couch and play a video game for three hours... I have wasted three hours. Wasted. Now the first 15 minutes may have been, okay, I just need some time to just decompress. First hour, okay, maybe you can write that off. But once you get past that mark and you start getting into two and three hours, you're wasting time. I mean, 
regardless of how much we want to claim, no, I'm not, you know, no, you're wasting time. And it's not just video games, Facebook. Facebook. If you scroll and you've been scrolling, not really looking at anything, not really learning anything, not really checking anything, just scrolling, you get past 20, 30, 40 minutes of just scrolling, you're going to have a strong index finger, but you're wasting time. <laughs> the same is true of Instagram. The same is true of pleasure reading, reading random books for no apparent benefit other than just enjoyment. Don't look at me like that. Minor theology books, they're edifying. But I read all the time. That's why she was looking at me like that. But I'm just saying, there are things that we can do to waste time. Is wasting time always bad? No. Because everybody just needs a little bit of time for themselves. It's beneficial. Time to decompress. Time to just breathe and just get all the concern out of your mind. And it looks different. To some people, it's video games. To some people, it's reading. To some people, to me, it's studying. I don't know why, but that's that's what does it for me. That's what recharges my batteries. But each person is different on what actually energizes them, what actually refreshes them. And it's okay to waste a little bit of time doing that. But the point is... Your time does not belong to you. You are made a steward of 24 hours in a day. And the question is like this. If you work eight hours a day and you sleep eight hours a day, you have eight hours unaccounted for. What do you do with that eight hours? Because that eight hours you're going to, be, you're going to answer for. What do you do with that extra eight hours? Anyway, so that's wasting time. You can spend time. Spend time with your family. Sometimes that's investing time in your kids' lives, in your spouse's lives. Sometimes it's just spending time, just enjoying life together. Sometimes you're spending time with friends. There's nothing wrong with that. But investing time, the last thing you can do with your time is when literally you take your time to disciple somebody else, you take your time and donate it to a church work project, you take your time to go to a soup kitchen on Thanksgiving, you invest your time to bless somebody else where you're not the focus of your... It's a sacrifice of your time doing something that you may or may not enjoy to literally invest into somebody else's life so that they get the fruit of it, they get the product of it, they get the benefit of it, and you're not the sole benefactor. That's investing time. So three things you can do with your time. You can waste it, you can spend it, and you invest it. Capabilities, your skills. I said that you have talents, you have gifts, you have experience, things that are tr you're truly good at, your natural bend, as it were. Some people are good with numbers. I think, Miss Randy, you said you were good with numbers. Oh, well, Bruce said it. You know, People are good at something. I firsthand Bill's good at construction. I'm not the best trim worker. That's why there's some gaps in some of the trim cuttings. But in the nursery, you're good at science, harvest. Dewey's good at everything here at the church. Uh, Adam, you're great at cars. I'm just saying that people have bins, things that they're good at, whether they're just naturally good at it. I'm naturally good with words, good at reading, face naturally good at all kinds of stuff. But those are gifts that God has given you. Everything that you have the ability to do, you know, even talking, some people just struggle with it. So if you can talk, that's a gift. 
if you have the ability and you think I've done this, I've over a hard career became good at construction over a hard career I became good at mechanics no God has blessed you with the ability to learn that mentally the physical ability to perform that and the retention ability to remember that God has blessed you with those abilities so now because God has gifted you with that you're responsible for how you use those and I'm very, very thankful. I mentioned Adam's mechanic ability. I personally am very thankful that he uses and is a good steward of that because he has blessed my car many a time. But I'm just saying, we have natural bins. Are we using those at every available opportunity for the glory of God? Are we good stewards of the abilities that God has given us? The fourth is contact your sphere of influence. Who are you allowing in your inner circle? Who has the ability to influence you? Because we all have people out there that have a say in our lives that probably shouldn't have a say in our lives. I was actually talking this morning in the fellowship hall about some people with some negative feedback, and I told them just sing that Taylor Swift song, do the little dance, shake, shake, shake it off. Sometimes people shouldn't have a say in our life. If they... Say something, it should just be water off a duck's back. It shouldn't have any bearing. Or it shouldn't ever get past our ears. It shouldn't get into our mind and it shouldn't get into our heart. We should be able to filter and say, this person is allowed to have a say in my life. This person is not. And who's, how are you influencing those people who consider you an influence? Because sometimes our actions, regardless of our words, sometimes our actions don't portray the best influence in other people's lives. And our, lastly, our conversation. You're held accountable for every idle word that you ever say. If I talk to you 15 different times for an hour each time, and 13 of those hours of our conversation are about nothing but football, I love football. I'm going to go watch football after church today. But if you talk to me 15 different times, an hour each time, and 13 hours of that conversation is about football, my priorities might be just a little bit mixed up. Our conversation needs to reflect the God that we say that we serve. We need to be a good steward of our conversation. We need to use conversation opportunity for edifying. The Bible says iron sharpens iron just like one man sharpens another or one woman sharpens another. We have the ability to sharpen each other, to edify each other, to boost each other up, to encourage each other. So our conversation should do that. And it doesn't all have to be, well, chapter 3 and verse this says, no, it can be God is for you. God is on your side. I know things are rough, but God is your healer. I know things are rough, but God is your provider. I know that things are going great, and that's great in the good times. Why don't you just sing a song of praise and shout an acclamation for God because He's the reason things are going good. Things aren't so going so good. Why don't you just praise Him anyway? And after you do that, let's take a moment to reflect on His goodness and glory and say, God, even though I know it's bad, I know that Your Word says that You're good and we're going to abide in Your goodness regardless of what the circumstance says. That's what we should be doing in our conversation, not just a race to the bottom. I'm going to moan, so you're going to moan louder. I'm going to complain, so you're going to complain more. I'm going to say, I'm sick with this, this, and this. So you're going to say, well, I'm sick with this, this, and this, and I've been dealing with this on the side, and so-and-so said this to me. That's so often that's what we do. Our conversations are a race to the bottom. Who has it worse? Who's worse off today? I woke up with a headache. Well, I woke up with a headache and my stomach hadn't been feeling good. Well, not only if I woke up with a headache and my stomach isn't feeling good, but did you know I didn't sleep at all last night? I mean, I'm just saying, this sound familiar? Because we've all had these conversations. I know, let's, 
let's take our halos off, let's sit them in the seat next to us, and let's be open and honest. We've all had these conversations where we've been in a race to the bottom. Who has the worst life? And that right there is exactly what caused the children of Israel to get attacked by fiery serpents out of the ground because they were constantly complaining. Complaining is an insult. I'm sorry, is an insult. Let me get my vernacular correct. Complaining is an insult to God. Because if God is in control of the weather, if God is in control of your finances, if God is in control of your circumstances, and He is sovereign Lord of all, and you're complaining, 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 then essentially what you're saying is, God, I do not like the way you're doing this. I think I could do a better job. And so you are attacking and discrediting His glory and His sovereignty. Now I want to end with this because this has been such a popular message. You know, I want to wrap this up. What I've been talking about with stewardship is essentially a two-part issue. Number one is sanctification, which is a big fancy word, which simply means to separate. You are separating from the world and separating to God. Sanctification is a reflection of how much like Christ you look. Sanctification is a reflection of how much influence does God have in your life. That's the first issue. The second issue is trust. And I want to show you this story and then we're going to conclude on this. There's a story in the Old Testament where the king of Assyria sends an army to attack Israel. And Israel has locked their doors. Hezekiah was king at the time. They've locked their doors. And the Assyrian speaker, who has this really easy name, Rabshakeh, to pronounce, super easy, Rabshakeh, which I'm probably saying that wrong. And anyway, he calls Hezekiah out. And this is how he does it. He says, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Skips a little bit and it says, In whom do you now trust? This moment, in whom do you trust? And then he starts calling out some different kings. And when he calls out the king of Egypt, he says this. He says, Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. And then he goes on. But here's the point. Sanctification aside, although that is necessary and prominent, if you're trusting in yourself for your finances, if you're trusting in yourself for your time, if you're trusting in yourself for your capabilities, if you're trusting in yourself for your contacts, if you're trusting in yourself for your conversation, you are leaning on a broken staff. And my stepbrother at the time, we were digging, and the shovel had a broken handle. Well, it was fiberglass shovel, and he was using it anyway. Broken handle, he didn't want, he was too lazy to make the trip down the road to go to the garage and get a different shovel, so he just kept using it. And a fiberglass splinter, when he pushed in, went into his hand. And it was small, and he didn't realize that it had got there. His hand ended up swelling up and getting infected, and was that way for um, over a month, like almost two months period. And they were having conversations of amputating his hand, because even though they got the fiberglass out, it had split into separate little shards, and they had to have like two or three surgeries on that hand to get that issue taken care of, when the only thing he had to do was get a shovel that didn't have a broken handle. And the reason that I'm telling you that story is because many of us, myself included, at times in our life, are like, God, I know that your word says I need to tie. I know that your word says I need to give my time. I know that your word says I need to do this or this or this. I know that that's what I'm supposed to do. And I know that your word says that you'll provide for me. And I know that your word says that you'll take care of the details. But I'm going to trust in my broken handled shovel and dig it myself. When God says all you've got to do is make the time and the effort to go get the better shovel and to make the sacrifice and I'll prove to you 
and you'll get to keep your hand. What I'm essentially saying is trusting in yourself for your finances, your time, your life, your contacts, your abilities, your conversation, all of that. Trusting in yourself is going to bring injury and despair and a lot of unnecessary pain when you can just make the sacrifice. So the question that we end with on this super popular message is who do you trust? Do you trust in yourself? Do you trust in your job? Do you trust in your own decision-making ability? Or do you trust God? Because if you trust yourself, then maybe your faith isn't holding as good of a conscience as you would like it to. And that therein is how we could potentially make a shipwreck of our faith by having the faith and not having the life that reflects the faith. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for the ability to preach this message. Lord, You know that I loved it so much. But Lord, I'm just asking that the words aren't my words, but Lord Jesus, that the words are truly Yours. And just like in the book of Acts where You took their language that they were speaking forth and You translated it and everyone that was there in the audience heard it in their own native language, I'm asking that the words are shifted and changed and altered and that the people hear it in this congregation the way that they need to hear it, that it actually can impact and make a difference in their lives. Because Lord, I'm interested in the Word bringing forth the fruit. And You said that You'll never send Your Word forth, but that it would bring a harvest and accomplish the purpose for which You sent it. So God, I'm asking that the Word that was preached accomplish the purpose that You would intend for it to accomplish in everyone's life here today. I'm asking, Lord Jesus, that we stop trusting in ourselves or our own decision-making, our own ability, but we would truly start trusting in You. In Jesus' name, Amen. Go in peace.